Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 270, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Sophie Bakri. She's the chair at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and she joins us to discuss her rise in academic ranks in her career, a discussion of a recent article she published with the resident about predatory publishing, and we also talk a little bit about how young doctors can build their academic careers. As always, you can find information about financial disclosures for all participants in the podcast in the episode description. In addition, you can find a link to claim CME credits on the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by Dr. Sophie Bakri. Dr. Bakri is professor and chair in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Bakri, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jay. So you are a new guest, and all new guests get the same question, and we get a various uh, assortment of answers to this question, but I still think it's interesting and helps give our listeners background, especially the younger listeners. So how did you end up choosing ophthalmology? So take yourself back to when you were in medical school. Did you go into medical school thinking about ophthalmology? And at what point did you make that decision to become an ophthalmologist and then afterward a retina specialist? So um, I was fortunate in that I had exposure to ophthalmology very uh, early on. Uh, My father is an ophthalmologist. And so I grew up uh, knowing um, a lot about ophthalmology. Um, You know, as I think back to our dinner table conversations, it really wasn't so much the technicalities of the surgery, but all I remember is about, you know, helping patients. And I just remember stories of helping people, helping people see. And, you know, as I followed my, my father in clinic, it would be exactly the same thing. These are the things that I would remember. It would be the, the impact on the patient. And so then um, I remember, you know, going to watch cataract surgery and, uh, almost fainting the first time that I watched it. Um, but, you know, again, you know, when you, uh, when you see enough and, and, and you see the, uh, the, the gratitude that patients have and the impact on their lives, it really makes uh, an impact on you as well. So I went into medical school thinking, well, it was a maybe. Um, and then through medical school, um, I, I had an open mind. I went through every rotation and I thought, well, what would this be like? But then I realized I had this unconscious bias that my standard was ophthalmology and everything was being compared to that standard. And so, you know, I I mean, I went through a few, um, you know, a few things that I thought of, a few other specialties. But at the end of the day, I just thought, no, no, it's just ophthalmology and it it cemented it in my mind. So... um, so really, that was why ophthalmology. I mean, I was very lucky. I had early exposure, and it was all a very positive um, experience. And you also made the transition where you a lot of people tr- train in a different country and decide to move to the United States. What was kind of the reasons behind that decision as well as we talk about why you chose retina? Yeah, so um, the reason that I wanted to transition is that I, um, again, my exposure to, you know, ophthalmology and having, you know, gone to conferences and you know, having kind of journals, you know, lying around our, our house all the time, I knew that I really wanted to do academic ophthalmology. 
I knew I wanted to teach and I wanted to do um, research. And, um, you know, I looked into where the best opportunities were and, and where the best places were. And, um, you know, did, you know, came over to visit the United States you know, a few times, did some short rotations. And then I decided and really truly believed that the opportunities to go into academics in the United States were really unparalleled. And uh, again, I've never really thought about anything other than academics. And so, so really that was why it was kind of a very thoughtful decision. I knew it was going to be really hard, um, but I, I looked down the road at where I wanted to be. Um, the opportunities in the United Kingdom are definitely there. They have fantastic eye hospitals, but I would look at, you know, my mentors and my peers um, and those that were further on than me and they wanted to do academics, but they do fellowship after fellowship in several different countries. They would be super well trained and yet there was no position at the end of the day for them. And, um, and they weren't really doing what they wanted to do. And then, of course, at that stage, you know, having to retrain and do exams is difficult. So I, I looked further down the road and I thought, look, if I know I want to do this, I want to really open every possible door. And so that's why I decided to make the uh, transition to the United States. You know, you, looking back at your training, you, you did your fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, mm -hmm. the fantastic institute at Cole. Uh, and then, you know, you went from training in the Midwest to now practicing in the Midwest at Mayo Clinic. And you recently, and I mean recently within the last year, have been appointed the chair there at Mayo Clinic. Well, well deserved and uh, something that uh, many in the field are really, really happy to see to have yet another women become a chair because that's been something that has been a slow evolution but now we have an extensive pool of women growing over time who are chairs of academic departments so i'm going to put on my hat as, as a younger academic ophthalmologist and, and this is something i've struggled with how did you decide when you started in academics what to focus on as an area of academic study because i feel that there are there, there are some people who enter academia and they know even before they went to residency sometimes or even during residency that they have something specific they want to work on a certain basic science approach or clinical approach that they really are passionate about that drives all their decision making and i think those people are incredibly incredibly important to the field of ophthalmology and academics but i think that and i like to think the majority of us don't necessarily have that one thing that drives us we, we like certain things about academics we love ophthalmology and then we enter academics, we try to find kind of our niche and, and figure out what is it that's going to make our career. So based on your experience, I mean, what would you tell younger academic ophthalmologists in your department in terms of what to focus on as an area of study? What sort of things to, to, to do in the first few years to kind of foster a good academic career? Well, I think it depends, first of all, on what, um, what the uh, young ac academician's background is. Um, as you alluded to, many come into the field already with a PhD and, and have a really strong background in basic science and in perhaps in one aspect of basic science. And for those, I think it, it's a lot easier to sort of to decide or have an area. But having said that, for many folks with a PhD, they may, not, they may decide that they don't want to run a lab. So I think the decision there to be made is you're going to collaborate and use your um, you know, skills in a collaborative way. Or are you going to run a run a lab? And of course, even running a lab is is collaborative. Now, for those of us who are clinicians, I think it's important, you know, to take um, a good look and realize that our strengths are in clinical care. And every, you know, I mean, my could my career could have gone in several different directions depending on where I had taken, you know, my first job. 
But when you go to a place, I think it's important as a clinician to look at the patient population that you're serving. Mm-hmm. And patients, they'll often, they'll often tell you what to focus on. You know, as you talk to more and more patients and you listen to more and more patients, and I would say listen is really important, think about what they're asking you. They're basically telling you where the unmet needs are. And so if you can then set up a system where, you know, you have your patients who you're serving and you're in a collaborative institution, you can start to put together the questions that need to be answered. And then um, you can start to put together the team. So ideally, to be successful, you want to align your research with your clinical practice. Okay, because then, you know, maybe there are times that you take your research to the lab um, via a collaborator, for example, and there are times when you might want to look at your, you know, patients for inspiration, whether it's clinical trials or epidemiology, et cetera. And you can build a whole ecosystem around that particular topic. Um, You know, if if you think about it, if you have, you know, a topic or a question, you may want to look at, you know, the the epidemiology, you may want to look at what the potential is, you know, for for new drugs, for example. There's a whole um, bunch of things that, that one can consider. So, you know, I mean, we have, for example, you know, a really large, you know, macular disease population. Um, in some places, you know, there may be, um, you know, more of a focus, for example, you know, on pediatric retina. So don't try to make something fit that doesn't fit. You know, just go with the flow, see what problems your patients have, and think critically about where the unmet needs are. You know, try to focus on something big as well, not something kind of, you know, not something sort of tiny that isn't going to have as big of an impact. Try not to focus on something where so many people have already gone before you. Just try to think of just a really unique angle. And, you know, things will come, think, things will come down the line that you maybe didn't intend to focus on, but, you, you know, something happens in your, in your clinic and, uh, you know, with a patient and you start to investigate, why does this happen? So, so I think that's one way um, of focusing as a clinician. I mean, that, that's great advice, and that's kind of matched to what, uh, you know, when I started, what I asked some of our people here in our department at Bascom, that's Dr. Harry Flynn, who's our, our head of the retina department, told me very similarly when he started, that was kind of how he built his career, and it makes a lot of sense. Now, you're in this transition phase where now you're the chair of a department, and with that responsibility um, comes a kind of a different lifestyle. So take us through a typical day as the chair of an academic department. How How is it different than when you were uh, and in, a professor, endowed professor, but in terms of your clinical efforts, your research efforts, and what sort of things do you do during the day? Because again, a lot of us in academics, that's kind of the upward trajectory for some of us is uh, you move up the ladder, you go from an assistant professor to an associate to a full, and then do you move into ad- administrative positions such as a chair if you have that privilege, if you have that, you know, someone is, you know, feels strongly enough that you are the right person for that sort of role. How do you kind of go through the day as compared to before you were the chair? Yeah, so um, I would say it is very, very different. Um, you know, before, you know, you're a chair as, an, as a, you know, a clinician and a researcher, really what you're thinking about is pretty much you and your team, okay? That's what you're thinking about, the success of you, your team, your patients, you know, your research. And, um, for example, you know, Let's say um, you're a clinician that likes to write papers. 
well, you don't actually have to write that paper in the evening. I mean, at the end of the day, you just won't write it. Okay, mm-hmm. it's discretionary. But when you're a chair, doing the extra stuff is actually your job. So there is a, there's a lot of out-of-hours you know, work, um, you know, as, as you said. But when you're a chair, basically, your, your job is to focus not on yourself, but on your department and on your colleagues. And the way I think about everything now, you know, in terms of every administrative decision that's made, I think, how does it affect the department? And okay, if we do this, well, how does it affect my colleagues? How does it affect the future trajectory of the department? You just have to think much bigger picture and you kind of have to take yourself out of it. Um, And so, yes, you see patients, you try and keep up with your research, you know, you still give talks, et cetera. But the rest of the time is really dedicated to, you know, improving um, improving the department and basically making sure that others are successful. I mean, that that's how I see my role. You know, again, you, you have to think about the people who are on the team, the people who are in the department, and what is it that they want? What is it that they uh, want to do? What is it that they could be really successful at? And how can I leverage the resources to help them. I mean, that, that's, that's how I think about it. Everybody has so much potential. Everybody has so much talent. And really to have, to have a successful department, you know, I just want to leverage the, the talent in, in every single person and make sure that they're performing um, at their best. And, and that's how I think of things right now. So it requires a lot of discretionary effort from me. Um, obviously, you know, you'll, you'll come home and you'll find, you know, emails that typically um, you know, people wanting to apply for a grant, need a letter of support, etc. And these are things that, you know, I, I aim to turn around very quickly. And likewise, you know, I'll hear of opportunities um, for others to apply for grants or, you know, for leadership roles within the institution. And, you know, I'll call people up and I'll pass those along and I'll say, look, I think this would be great for you because blah, 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 just think about it. And so, um, so, so I think, you know, it's just a different, it's a different mindset. It, it's really all about others, I think. Mm-hmm. No, that's 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 a that's a great perspective. I think a lot of us look at our chairs and see how busy they are, and it's a little intimidating sometimes to think about kind of the sacrifice that comes with that. Because I'm sure there are many people who have obviously you don't get to that point without a tremendous clinical and research output and academic output, and there, I'm sure there are things that you have to leave behind as well in sort of what's for the better of the department. You know, for example, clinically, it seems that a lot of chairs just can't see as many patients just because they have so many administrative duties pulling them in different directions. What, for example, like what did you do with your patient volume? So the patients you were seeing before, do you still see those same patients just on a more condensed schedule? Do you transition any of those patients to other positions? How did you handle the clinical side? Yeah, so, um, you know, the way the chair transition works at Mayo Clinic is it is it immediate. And so, you know, I was informed that when I was appointed, that my position would start that day. And I was an extremely busy um, clinician. And, you know, I had been kind of told that, you know, my, my job is different now, right? I'm, you know, I, I, I chair the department and, and represent everybody in the department. And so, you know, immediately my clinics were cut back and some of the patients were um, allocated to um, other physicians. But I have to say those first couple of months, I saw all the patients who were on my schedule because you know, my mindset is I don't like to reschedule patients. I don't like to say no to patients. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I was working, I mean, I still am, but it was much, much harder those first few months 
because the, the clinics weren't cut back. And part of it's my own fault, um, just because, you know, I, I don't like to, I, I just don't like to reschedule patients. Um, and now, um, uh, you know, now things are uh, equilibrating, you know, quite a bit. And we have, um, you know, my first uh, few months, we've hired two new retina surgeons who will be starting um, next year. And they're both academic retina surgeons. And I think that, um, you know, that, that will really help. Um, you know, likewise with, you know, things like clinical trials, for example. Um, I mean, I'm doing some, but I have to sort of, I have to set a limit to myself, I think, so that I can continue to do my primary role, which is to serve the department. Right. So, and, and I think that, you know, the first couple of years of being a chair um, are the hardest because that's when we're really trying to, you know, make, uh, make things happen, um, you know, execute our vision and really also understand the role, understand uh, what the institution wants um, of us and, uh, you know, understand, you know, what the faculty needs. And so I suspect that, you know, in the um, in the eight years or so that um, that one is a chair at Mayo, you know, the job can change quite a bit, you know, from from beginning to middle to end. Um, like I guess any role is just like a developing clinician. But you know, I still have a lot to learn. I still no. have a lot to learn from those who, you know, we have a lot of former chairs in our department. You know, we have a former CEO as well. We have a lot of colleagues, um, chair, very successful chairs in other departments, and I think that the more I spend time with them and uh, the more I learn from them, you know, the more ideas I'll get for the department, and um, and and the more I'll uh, um, I'll change and develop as well. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great great perspective, and and I'd be curious. One last kind of academic question before we go into a little uh, research study you and uh, one of your residents just published. My other academic question, which I think is kind of a topical question, which is why I'm kind of asking this, is what's your perspective on what will happen with academic meetings, medical meetings, but retina meetings and ophthalmology meetings going forward, right? So we've had this this transition, obviously, with coronavirus, where we went from this circuit where we, many of us were constantly on the circuit and traveling all over. And we had some surgeons in our field who were at a different meeting every week all across the world in person. And coronavirus put a halt to that uh, for safety and health reasons. And we've transitioned many of these meetings to virtual formats, which carry their own benefits. There are downsides, obviously, to virtual formats, but their own benefits in terms of inclusivity, in terms of reducing the need for travel, in terms of a bigger reach, in terms of the audience who now can access this. Is it a little more democratic, maybe? What do you see as the future of this? So let's, let's project like two, three years from now. Let's say you know we reach a point where there is a, a, a vaccine that is, is working or reach a point where people feel safe and comfortable traveling and the health standards are there. We're not talking about the health side of predictions, but let's say we do reach that point, whatever point that is. Do you think we're gonna still incorporate, like do you think some of these things will become permanently virtual given the benefits and given the efficiency, given the reduction in costs? Do you think that we'll go back exactly to the way things were before? Where do you kind of see on the pendulum things falling when we do reach an equilibrium? Yeah, that's that's a really great question, Jay. And I've thought a lot, a lot about this. So, you know, whenever a crisis happens, the question is, do we learn from a crisis or do we revert to the way things were before the crisis? You know, do we have short memories? Okay. I hope that we can incorporate the good things um, that we've that we've learned during this COVID crisis, I, I really do. 
Um, I say I hope because, again, things could revert to the way they were. But if you think about it, you know, it's 100% virtual now. I, I think people are a little tired of it. I think that people have realized that there are multiple reasons why they go to me. Okay. And the people is a big part of it. You know, just seeing people, you know, in person. Now, don't forget, you know, you and I, we're academic ophthalmologists. You know, we go to a lot of meetings. But there are many, many ophthalmologists there who either don't want to go to meetings or can't go to meetings, you know, for personal reasons. And what's most important to them is to just get the continuing medical education and to, you know, go there with a mission to learn a specific thing and then come back. And I think that there are different reasons for people to have meetings. And I think we need to cater to all those reasons. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that, that there will be sort of a hybrid approach where, yes, there are some virtual meetings, there are some in-person but also that perhaps there are some hybrid virtual and in-person meetings so that maybe you can view a lot of presentations before you get to the meeting. You know, maybe they just have a discussion at the meeting um, and maybe the meeting ends up being shorter. You know, the other thing that I think will also change is, is you know, physicians' um, feelings about traveling. I think when you haven't traveled for a while, I think you begin to realize that it actually did take a toll on you. It did, right, right. It did take a toll on your family and on your practice. And, you know, we, we just did it before and we didn't think about that. But looking back on it, many, many people have told me, wow, I didn't realize what effect all this travel had on me. I hope I don't have to do as much travel in the future. So I think that people will think twice before, you know, getting on a plane to go give a lecture for two hours and then come back. Um, I, I think that they will. Yeah, and I, I think that's reasonable. And, and maybe you'll see requests from faculty where they'll say, well, you know, I'd love to give this lecture, but would you be you know, willing for me to give it in a, you know, on a virtual basis? Because I just got from this, if I do this, I'm going to be getting back from this city and going to this city. I mean, I think that point about the toll yeah. is super valid, right? We just basically had a, a shutdown for some of us for months. And it's kind of nice not to be running from airport to airport, to be living out of suitcase. Mm -hmm. there, there's definitely things that are nice about it. People have discovered other passions, you know, within medicine, outside of medicine, different things they want to focus on. So it will be interesting. And, and I think that we will learn more about this in the next year because there is the fatigue that you talked about, but maybe it's still not safe to do in person. So it'll be fascinating to see what people do in the next six to 12 months if there is this fatigue and saturation. But you are a meeting organizer and I'm on VitBuckle, we're trying to figure this out for the VitBuckle Society. It's kind of interesting to think about what's kind of the creative way to do it that's safe, but also engages a different part of people's brains maybe than just, you know, using another Zoom platform. But, um, you know, yeah, my absolutely. last, I mean, yeah, my, my last question, you, you and Samia Shah, who's one of your residents, you guys wrote this, this excellent uh, kind of a paper slash editorial. It was a study, but it also had kind of an editorial component about predatory publishing. We actually reviewed it here on the podcast um, because we just thought it was just something really important to talk about. Uh, and we defined predatory publishing, talking about these journals that essentially masquerade with names similar to quote unquote more traditional uh, and uh, journals. And then they essentially are trying to recruit academicians to write articles, to join editorial boards, to, to publish often for fees and profit kind of off of the establishment without actually offering any sort of academic merit. And there's a sliding scale of these. There are journals that 
require you to pay that have academic merit, and there's journals that don't require you to pay that have zero academic merit, and it's kind of a sliding scale along that spectrum. It, just qu quick thoughts on this, this subject. I think it was really important that you guys brought it to light. I, what drew the interest in this, and, and what do you think as a field, again, we talked about during that episode a little bit about our responsibility as a field, as reviewers, as editors, as as authors, you know, to, to kind of combat this, what do you think is kind of a responsibility as a field and where do you draw the line, right? So there are journals that now require the doctors or the authors to submit. For example, if you want to publish in print for color figures, you, you should pay for those because it's expensive. But as you move along that spectrum, there's some journals that require you to pay for the whole article, but they still, again, are affiliated with a major journal. I'll give an example. The American Journal of Ophthalmology, for example, has a case reports journal. Retina has a case reports journal, and they require you to pay to publish. Those seem more legitimate, but then you slide along that spectrum, and it gets a little less legitimate. Where do we kind of draw the lines? And then what responsibility lies with databases? So we talked about PubMed, for example. If something is PubMed indexed, we think of it as valid, but many of these journals are obtaining NIH access and getting their index on Medline and PubMed. So my, I guess my two-part question is, what is kind of our perspective as a field and then where do we kind of draw the line where something is reached the point where it's no longer academic and now it's predatory? Yeah, this is, uh, I think, predatory publishing, I think is a big problem um, in medicine. I mean, I became interested in this for many reasons. I mean, number one, 5 a.m., all the emails come through from these different journals that have very similar names to the journals that, that, that we publish in, inviting me to, you know, author, papers, be on the editorial board, etc. And and then I would find them not on PubMed, but on PubMed Central. Um, and then I would see them on people's CVs, typically, you know, younger academicians, and wondering, do they know or do they not know? And I, I always saw this as a real problem, because, you know, if somebody's going for academic promotion, and they publish in all these journals, that basically you pay a fee, it, it doesn't get peer reviewed and it just gets right in, right? Does the academic promotions committee know about that? Does the author know about this? Um, I, I think it's a real problem. And then what about science? You know, they're not reviewed. It's out in the public domain and it's free access and, and the data may just be completely wrong. And so then the public see this as, as, as a real journal because it sounds like one of the journals that we already know. So, you know, I, I've been thinking about this for a number, uh, number of years, and um, I've brought this up in sort of several different forums. But then the question is, well, what can we do? I think, first of all, I think education. Okay, we have to educate um, our fellow uh, academic ophthalmologists and more broadly, um, our fellow physicians, that, that these journals do exist and, and they, are, they are literally predators. And we also have to, you know, talk about this on academic promotions committees as well. And we have to disincentivize people to do that. So, for example, maybe there's, you know, some sort of, you know, database search, you know, or an algorithm such that if you have these journals on there, you know, your CV gets turned back and, and, and you're asked to remove these journals from your CV. In other words, it will not help your promotion, but it may actually hinder your promotion, right? Because why do people publish? Well, they want to get the data out there, but also, you know, it helps them with promotion as well. Now, interestingly, most of these um, articles in these predatory journals aren't actually cited. I'm always pleased to, to hear that. Um, 
and I read that in one of the uh, you know more um, popular magazines. I think it was Science or something like that. Um, so I mean, I guess that is a good thing. So somehow people aren't citing them, but I, I think we have to educate our peers, quite frankly. And, um, you know, we have to sort of start clamping down on it in academic institutions. But, um, you know, if people refuse to publish in them, then hopefully slowly these journals will die. But there are actually a number of databases that one can um, look up the legitimacy of a journal. Um, so I, I think it's important to to actually look uh, look up these journals. Now, personally, I, I look up the journals, you know, and I look at, you know, who the publisher is. If it's a publisher that's well known that I've heard of, then that's great. But once it starts getting into, you know, publishers' names, you know, at Gmail or at Yahoo, um, you know, with poor spelling, poor grammar, etc. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had a bunch of these emails, Jay, and you've seen how appallingly written these invitations to uh, contribute are. But I, I just think we have to, once we create awareness, hopefully if we get in this together as a field, we can uh, combat it. Right, yeah. I, I actually think, I was talking to a couple of people about this on the podcast, I think that emails have weirdly gotten better, though, in a bad way. I mean, they've gotten a little, like, you know, the more you're in the field, which journals are legitimate, even as you said, you can fact check it, but they used to be much grammatically much poorer. And I feel like they've caught yeah. on some of these journals and now they're actually well-written or the English is more proper. And I think, like you said, the, who are they preying on? They're not preying on senior academic ophthalmologists or even mid-career academic ophthalmologists. I think they're kind of preying on two groups. They're preying on people who are just starting their academic career, which is medical students, residents, fellows, early attendings, like you said, who may be trying to be, build their CVs for promotion and to move forward and to publish their work. I think they also prey on the international audience. I think a lot of our journals here, United States and Europe, which have been kind of the core journals, have importantly started to open their doors to international authors because it's sometimes difficult for international authors to get their work accepted. Uh, we don't necessarily have the best double-masked or double-blinded process where the reviewers are masked to who the authors are. And that, that does create a problem because there is always bias when you read an article by someone you know is a, a leader, and then you read an article by someone who you didn't know before you read the article, who they were, or what institution they came from, but that shouldn't affect the science of the article. And so there may be a bias against those people in traditional journals that drives them, or maybe they perceive there's a bias that drives them towards these journals just to get their work out. And maybe that's where the money is being coming from. Because if you look at a lot at the, the, the names who and the institutions that publish in these journals, there are a lot of international institutions that don't have kind of a traditional core journal or journal that they can necessarily go to. And so I think it's been a really good move by all the journals to kind of open the doors internationally and hopefully also move towards maybe double blinding or review because that may help as well. Yes, no, I totally agree with you. I think you bring up some great points as well about the international audience. I think we have a lot of work to do as a field. Well, Dr. Bakri, you've been extremely generous with your time. We'd love to have you for longer, but I, you know, you have to get ready for your workday tomorrow. So I will let you go. Uh, thank you so much for the advice for academic ophthalmologists. Thank you for giving us a little insight into your transition. And uh, I'm sure Mayo Clinic uh, will be really exciting to see what happens in the next couple of years and beyond with your leadership. Uh, um, again, congratulations. I know it's been a few months, but congratulations. I know it's uh, transition happened in the middle of a pandemic uh, or right before. So it's been a little bit of a tumultuous time, but um, hopefully all of you in Minnesota are safe and have a great night. Well, thank you, Jay. Thank you so much.
As always, you can find this podcast episode and all other podcast episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. You can find all 270 episodes, including this one, on the website. They are sorted by category and are easily searchable on the search icon. I prefer to access the podcast via the Apple Podcasts or Android Podcast app on my mobile device. You can also get updates on the most recent episodes if you go to the website. There will be a link to subscribe and receive each of the new podcasts in your email inbox. We're on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast. And to reach us, you can click the contact us link on our website or email me directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. We're very grateful for all the feedback you provided. And as we head into 2021, we are grateful ideas you have for future episodes or what you'd like to see better or what you'd like to see continue. Many thanks to Dr. Sophie Bakri for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks to Angela Chang, Mike Benacasa, and Louis Kai, all great doctors and part of our production social media team. Thank you to you, the listeners, for the articles you read and publish, the conversations you inspire here, and the patients you take care of on a daily basis. This is Jay Schreeder, signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> Take care. Bye bye.